Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 97, the dark side of long-term adventure travel. All that and more coming up. But today, before we get going, I want to give a shout out to some people who've helped Adventure Rider Radio and Raw incredibly this past month with support of $50 or more. Here we go. Steve Howard, Rudolf Vandenberg, John Lewis Schneider, and John Sirabassi from Emmaus Moto Tours. Thank you all so much. It's so great to have people that appreciate what we're doing and show that by supporting the show. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out like you just heard me do. Anything $10 or more gets you an Adventure Rider Radio sticker. But we would really appreciate if you just drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. We're also signed up on Patreon, and that's the one we would really appreciate it if you'd consider signing up for our Patreon account. That way we can we can count on you being there each month. All at our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. Now, in case Raw is a new discovery for you, we do another show every week called Adventure Rider Radio. That's our flagship show, so drop by our website. Again, adventureriderradio.com. All the information is there. So here we go, Adventure Rider Radio Raw for February 2024. Recorded live from the Canoe S Media Studio deep in the wild forests of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw for February 2024. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal my name is Jim Martin, and today the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet. I am joined by all of my regular esteemed Overland co-hosts. I'm going to start with Sam Manicom in the UK. Hello, Sam. Hi, Jim. Hi, everybody. Uh, I tell you what, I'm, I mean, here's me, terribly English, talking about the weather whenever I start talking to you guys. But I tell you what, um, it's it's a lovely evening here this evening, and I am smiling. Not only because of that, but because I'm back with you guys. Oh, very nice. Well, of course, happy to talk to you, Sam, as usual, every month. I'm going to jump over. Did somebody just pay you for that to say that, Jim? Do you just pay me, Sam? You just said that we just worked this out before we talked. I thought we did this. Oh, and I wasn't going to say anything. Sorry. Oh, I see what you're doing. You're trying to out me. Oh, now I get it. Okay, it's a little slow on that one. Jumping over to Australia, we have Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks. Good morning to the both of you. Good morning, Jim, and we don't expect payment. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't know what I was going to say yet. <laughs> we'll, we'll, say, we'll say nice things about you. You can say nice things about us. If it's cold over there, let's, let's we don't care. The weather, <laughs> that's that's <laughs> sort of an exchange. Did you see? Did you guys hear what she just did there? She worked out an exchange. You know, she's saying you will say nice things about you. You say nice things about us. I mean, that's sort of like one of those. You know, she's setting the lines right there. That's a warning. I took that as a warning. You know, uh, maybe. maybe. <laughs> so, Brian, are, are you about to go for a ride? Uh, yeah, of course we are. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we had, uh, yesterday we had everything. We had uh, 36 to 38 degrees, three swims in the pool. Then the the, um, the wind came, hot northerly winds, bushfires, uh, 12 mil of rain we had here. Huge thunderstorms. Huge thunderstorms, electrical storms created fires. Um, houses lost about uh, 150 kilometres from where we are. Ooh. And half a million people are without power in our state at the moment because wow. of the of the of the uh, storms we've had last night. Even the what? fires are, are are bringing the towers down. Is that what's happening to the power? No, the uh, wind is the bringing wind. the towers down. Oh, the wind, the wind and the fires, and you know it's it's quite open plains like areas just uh, west of us, 
and if you get an electrical uh, strike on dry grass, it just takes off. Wow. And that's what's happened, yeah. And you're still going to so, go for a ride, even in all this? Oh, yeah. Why not? It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to cool anyone today. listening to this, we always say this, Brian's going for a ride, but you actually are going for a ride every time we record. Uh, yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I just got to decide what bike to take, Jim. Yeah, it's a tough life. I know it's a tough life. <laughs> no, I can just imagine Brian standing there in front of his garage, thinking, um, "Which one should I take?" For about twenty-five minutes before he actually goes. <laughs> that must be so stressful. I mean, you know, it's, he probably wakes up early in the morning just stressing about that. <laughs> Let, let's jump over to the U.S. to South Dakota. Michelle Lampfair back on solid ground. Hello, Michelle. Hey, everybody. Nice to be here. And yes, I'm on solid frozen ground in, in the Black Hills. Um, Brian says it's 36. Well, what a coincidence. It, it is here too, except the other <laughs> Except he's Celsius and you're Fahrenheit. Yeah, well, there is a little difference there. Yeah, and we're, we're expecting a little snow for the next two or three days. So yeah, riding sounds really nice right now, but not for me, unfortunately, at the moment. But you, you, when you got back from your, your boat cruise there, which I think you're, I don't know what you were like six months on the boat or whatever it was, but, <laughs> but when you got back from that, you, you sort of landed on the coast there and you drove across the country, I think is what you did. Did that, I did. did that help transition you into that freezing cold weather or did you kind of get home and think, you know, I don't want to be here? Oh, well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I definitely, <laughs> I got some winter experience on the way across the U.S. There was actually a bunch of ice storms and cold weather. So I literally skated from Tennessee home <laughs> on icy roads. Um, so that that certainly was my my welcome to winter. But no, I'm, I'm happy to be home. I love four seasons. I just like the winters to be shorter <laughs> in South Dakota. <laughs> They're not. <laughs> well, you imagine being stuck where Brian and Shirley are with all that nice weather and stuff oh. they put up with for summer, a, a mild winter. And, uh, not for me. <laughs> it sounds <Yeah>. creamy. <laughs> Speaking exactly. of a mild place to live, let's let's bring in Grant Johnson in British Columbia, Canada. Hello, Grant. Hello, everybody. Good to be back. I'm just listening to everybody talk about these extremes of weather, and I'm looking outside, and it's absolutely perfectly blue, clear sky, little dusting of snow on the mountains. It's 15 degrees. It's a nice day for getting out and doing a little riding. Yeah, maybe I'll do that this afternoon. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the great thing about living on the Lowest coast land. <laughs> in Canada, the only place, the only place you could ride your motorcycle in the wintertime. Yeah. When I was young, <laughs> I actually rode every single day from age 16 till I got my first car at 21 when I got married. Mm. I rode every day. Yeah. When, when I lived on the coast, I, I rode right through the winter. I mean, it was no problem at all. Of course, it's easy to do, except for, you know, on, on our island, we got snow well, maybe for a week um, at the most. Maybe, maybe you get a little bit longer than that, but that was about it. And that was no big deal. I mean, most people don't even shovel because there's just no point. It'll melt. It'll go. Yeah. Same thing here. We had a massive snow dump a few weeks ago. Uh, I was literally halfway up the garage door and a week later, it's gone. Yeah. You know, there's, there's some of my neighbors who were out there shoveling. I was talking to them, and, why are you shoveling? Like, what's the point? That's the coast thought process <laughs> That's right the there. coast, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, for, um, for today's topic, we're going to go a different route here. Actually, we're going to hear from the person, the people that sent in the question, Michael and Angela Greer, who, who sent in the question. So what we did here was we decided to get them to tell their question to us, record the question. So 
I arranged to get together with them. We sat down and basically what we did, we had a little chat and we, we got them, I got them to read the question for all of us. So what I'm going to do here for all of us is um, I'm going to play that conversation so we can find out what they're about. They're actually traveling right now and find out about what they're doing and probably some of where this question comes from, so a little bit of background to it. So are you guys ready for this? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, here we go. Well, uh, my name is Michael Greer. And I'm Angela Greer. And together we are the Toonie Project. Uh, we're originally from uh, your old neck of the woods there in Vancouver Island in British Columbia. Mm. Uh, but right now you're talking to us uh, in Liberia, Costa Rica. Yeah, we hit the road uh, just over 10 months ago with the uh, goal of, uh, at least what we've been telling people, is we're going to go around the world over the next 10 years. And uh, it's taken us 10 months to get to Costa Rica, so <laughs> well, we're going slow. We're enjoying, we're enjoying the ride, literally. <laughs> it's a monumental trip for you, right? I mean, have you, have you sold your house or done something like that? We actually sold the house, sold the car, sold the furniture, my clothes. You sold um, your clothes? Michael's, wow. Yeah, Michael's, because I can't wear them all on the road. Michael's <laughs> tools, my kitchen stuff. Oh. We, we made it so that we are very committed to what we were going to do, and it would make it harder to go back. Wow. now we don't really have much to go back to. Yeah, of course. And tools, selling tools, that's like a, I mean, you know, for somebody who uses tools, that's sort of like a real final thing, isn't it? That it, it was tough for him. I have to say it was tough. <laughs> that was painful. The wood, I mean, I'm not uh, much of a woodworker, but I had, you know, some saws and stuff and they're not going to fit. We've got a small storage space, eight by eight for all the stuff that we can't easily replace and, and all the big woodworking tools just would fit. So they had to go. So you've, you've sold everything, literally. This trip is, you said around the world, but what, how many years is this supposed to be? <laughs> We've told people 10 years. And when we do that, it just seems to go right over people's heads. Really? Uh, we're going to go until we're done? Yeah, I, it's kind of, I tell Michael, until I've stopped having fun or I've <laughs> broken something that I can't fix. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, you wrote in with a question now. I have the feeling this question is from both of you. Is it from both of you? It, it is something that we have both thought of. We have discussed it. We have wondered if the uh, the panel would ever come across it because it's a, it's a little bit negative and you know we like to be positive about everything so that we can encourage other people to get on their motorcycles and ride but there are some big picture thoughts out there that uh, we haven't really heard discussed so um we decided we it was time to put it to you guys <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, does this question sort of come from your thought process of what your situation situation may be at the end of things well we know eventually we're going to go home, uh, eventually. <laughs> and we know that, uh, you know, there's no action without consequences. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's more the, what's it going to be like when we get home? Um, and what are, not that we're looking forward to going home anytime soon, but what's it going to be like when we actually get home? What are the things that we're going to have to deal with? Um, and what kind of adjustments are we potentially going to have to be prepared to make? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Your question sort of came in two parts because we went back and forth with email. And, and I want to get you to read the, the questions, just read them out as you wrote them. So if you can just start with that first one. Okay, so um, I, I kind of put the whole thing together under the heading of the dark side of long-term adventure travel. And so I'd like to hear, I'd be curious to hear the panelists' experience and thoughts about what comes 
after long-term, and I'm talking about multi-year adventure travel, for example, what is the adjustment like to returning to normal, and I say normal, quote unquote, normal life at home after years on the road? Adjustments, uh, you know, in terms of being in the same location versus, uh, you know, on the move, reintegrating into community, you know, uh, trying to deal with people who may not have the same worldview or perspective that you've come to develop after traveling and seeing uh, so many different parts of the world. Um, what about what happens to those who've taken off to travel without having any type of passive income? They're working off their savings. They return home older and broke. Uh, you know, I hear Sam talk about uh, he's working and Grant commenting about Susan working. Um, so yeah. what do people end up doing after years of adventure travel if they've burned through all their cash? Um, perhaps they successfully leverage that experience and transition to the next phase of their life and are able to generate income from that. Um, uh, maybe there aren't that many people who find themselves in that situation uh, to make these questions very relevant, but that's why I wanted to pose those to you. Okay. And so, so then I, I messaged you back and then you sort of, you expanded on this when you responded to me. So go ahead and read your expansion on that. The second one. All right. So then uh, I sent back to you there, Jim, um, that the return to work part really wasn't the core of the suggestion. I'm really looking into um, a large part. It's the psychological impact of returning home after round the world, round the world travel. You know, having spent all of one's money needing to return to work to fund quote unquote normal life is just one aspect. Um, I'd like to add to the question uh, also about long term health implications of round the world travel. For example, impact of injuries. I mean, the, the panel constantly teases Sam about all the, uh, the offs he's had, and I'm sure those don't come uh, without consequences. Yeah, so, injuries. Uh, disease, for example, you know, people get I don't know, hep C or malaria or pick up something from uh, their travels, uh, constantly having to breathe the pollution. Uh, emission standards are a lot lower in many parts of the world that we've seen, at least so far in Central America. It's, exactly. It's yeah. atrocious. So having breathed all that pollution for years and then trying to maintain things like good dental health, uh, good nutrition and good fitness. Um, so Really what I'm looking for is, is what, if any, cost or implication is associated with long-term travel that, you know, people don't talk about because they're always focused on the, on the good side, always focused on all the fun and the experiences that they're having. Well, what's the cost that comes with that? The physical cost. Physical and psychological. And psychological. You know, yeah. for example, I, um, we met a guy at an event who... Uh, just said he had such a hard time reintegrating with his friends and his family back home because they have such a completely different perspective on the world than what he's developed after spending, in his case, four years uh, traveling around the world. Well, let's see what the panel says. But before I let you go, I just want to ask you, what are you guys looking for on the road? What, what is this trip about for you guys? Um, there's two aspects. There's the having fun and there's the doing good. And the having fun is just getting out there and um, eating different foods, learning different cultures, uh, you know, trying to capture some of the different languages and just seeing all that the world has to offer. You know, seeing the, the, the mountains and the cool churches and the, the small villages 
and the really weird stuff mm-hmm. um, and just kind of soaking all that in and and gaining an appreciation for all that the world has to offer. So that's the have fun part. And of course, just riding the motorcycles. Love which, riding the motorbikes. That's mm-hmm. the big draw. <laughs> but the but. do good part is um, is where the Toonie Project name comes from. Oh, um, no, I was going to ask you that. That was the next thing I wanted to ask you about because yeah. I wondered if it was the Toonie. Well, I'm going to let you tell it. Yeah. All right. Well, as you and, and Grant will know for sure, the Toonie is the nickname for the $2 coin in Canada. And so what we've done is we've asked our friends if they believe in what we're doing is to consider donating $2 a month towards our project. And what our project is, as we travel, we look to connect with orphanages and we go and we visit the orphanages and we look around and we see how we can be a blessing for the kids, uh, how we can contribute money that we've raised towards solving a problem or improving safety or quality of life for the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, in Mexico, for example, we donated a couple of washing machines because mm. they needed washing machines. Hmm. In um, Belize, we helped pay for a uh, replacement transmission for one of their vehicles. Wow. In Guatemala, we um, paid to rebuild rebuild, uh, rebuild uh, the motor on a, a minibus. Yeah, school van. Yeah. Wow, you guys are raising they, some serious money then. <laughs> uh, yeah, it makes it sound like a lot. Um, certainly we could be raising more, but, uh, you know, we, we do what we can with what we have. We're very thankful to the friends and family and, and even the strangers we've met on the road who've uh, contributed either on a regular monthly basis or a one-time basis to our fund. None of it goes towards us. We, I've We're got a pension. Yeah. We're self-supported. Uh, so every penny goes, every penny goes directly towards uh, helping the kids. That's that's very neat. Uh, Toonie Project, did the Toonie, as you mentioned, the other one is our is our dollar coin, which is a loony. Only Canadians would yeah. call it a loony and yeah. a Toonie. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much, both of you. I, I really appreciate this question, and, and let's see what the panel has to say. Yeah, we look forward to hearing um, how they respond because there's been they touched on little parts of it over time, but I don't know that we've gone that deep on it and. Um, I'll be very interested. Yeah. <laughs> Angela, Michael, thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Okay. So that was the recording from um, Angela and Michael Greer with their, their question. Now, just to, to go back to the question, what, what they're, what they're asking to take us back there, they're asking about the, the psychological impact um, and really the, the cost of long, long-term travel and what they're when they say cost, they're, they're referring to physical and psychological. So, what do you guys think? Where do you start with this? Hmm. Well, first, I think it's a a great question, and I really appreciate Michael and Angela sending it in because it's it's something that is really thought provoking. And until you're either in that position or considering taking a long trip like this, I don't think you really think about it and what those long-term consequences are. Um, I don't think of it so much. I, I, I love that they referred to it as being the dark side and a dark question, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think that it is. I think it's really realistic. And I think it's something that if you're going to consider a long-term trip, um, you really need to take a look at because there's a trade-off, as we all know, in every choice that we make, you give something up for the thing that you choose to take on. And we don't always see it that way. Um, but it, it's good to evaluate that. And and no doubt, I think that probably all of us today could talk about the things that, you know, we've experienced both psychologically and physically 
it, especially after being on the road for a long time and what we faced when we came back. I, I think there's some challenges for sure. I, I think that's a really good point. I, I mean, it, it's easy to get excited when you're doing anything in life, get excited about what you're doing, but thinking about afterwards and in particular with something like this, because it's taken a chunk of your life if you're doing some sort of long-term travel, be it, you know, six months or, or, or a couple of years. And there, there's going to be consequences, of course. There's going to be changes afterwards. And it's probably something that's easily overlooked. I think people spend so much time and so much energy working on what they're going to do, how they're going to get the money together, um, things they want to see, things they want to experience, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that very, very little time is is given over to this. Um, I don't think that thinking about these things needs to be right smack in the forefront of, of um, somebody who's at the planning um, stage is their mind. But at the same time, um, yeah, spend, spend a little bit of time making a plan for when you get back. Um, I mean, I can only say that it helps for me if I'm organized before I set out off on, on a trip. So, for example, one of the key things that I'll do is I'll arrange several references from the companies that I've been working from before I go. Um, be that work or personal, uh, volunteer work or whatever else it may be. Uh, because while you're away on the road for a long time, people move on. Um, it, they could die, uh, they could change jobs, their circumstances change, and so they're no longer in a position to be able to give you the references. And one of the key mm. things when you get back from a trip is be able to go to a future employer and say, look, this is what I can do. Um, and then you add on the list of skills and talents that you've, um, you've learned or you've honed while you've been on the road. But I think in the short term, so actually in the final stages of a trip, um, when you're getting towards getting off the plane or riding back into your home country, it's it's having a base plan, which means that you're not arriving home and flopping around like a fish out of water. So what I try to tend to do, and I, this is, I can only say this for me, but this is what works for me. I work out where I'm going to live and why I want to live there. So for example, when... Birgit and I decided that we were going to live in Exeter. We thought about uh, friends and family uh, being nearby, um, the type of, of jobs that might be available in the city. Um, and I know people also look at the cost of living uh, when they're planning to go back. Now, for, um, for a long time, Wales has been um, what was quite a cheap part of the United Kingdom to live. And I know quite a few travellers who ended up living in Wales because the cost of living there was so much less than much of the rest of the country. But the other thing that I, I try to do is I have a plan for keeping busy. So in other words, I make a list of the things that I want to see when I get home, things that I always meant to see and never did, places that I want to revisit. I list the friends that I want to see. Uh, and I also um, get ready, start planning a new trip. And I know that sounds mad, but if I've got something that I can be um, keeping on the move, but also dreaming about for the future that's going to scratch my travel itch, then that helps keep my sanity. And... I don't know, it, it just stops you returning and feeling like you're standing on the edge, on the cliff edge and about to fall over. And the other thing for me is, um, and I know we've talked about this in the past, but it still remains really important for me not to come back broken in debt because I, I want to do things. I, I really like you, you said, you said reference. I think that's such a point, good point that it's so easily overlooked. It's like even a rental reference. I mean, if you're renting your apartment or something like that before you go, yeah, like if you're coming back much later, I never even thought about that. I mean, somebody, they could be gone. Your contacts could be gone. Good luck trying to get a reference at that point. 
and then you've instantly got a housing issue, <laughs> you know? So, so if that's the case, that's, that's great. I really like the keep busy thing too. I mean, I, I think yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense because part of what um, I hear people say when they come back from a long trip is that it can be, well, somewhat, I, I don't want to use the word depressing because I don't think that's actually said depressing, but it can be a bit of a, a, a letdown, I guess, to all of a sudden go back to something that is, I guess, just not as exciting as being on the road. It's a change. It's a real change. I think that's the the biggest thing that you have to get used to the idea of is it's a complete change from constant motion, constantly being on the road, constantly packing up, constantly seeing new things. And then you're not. It's all the same. So, yeah, it, it can be boring. It can be depressing, I think. Because it's such a radical change. It's like when a lot of people head off first time they get out on the road. We've had people say, well, how do you guys do this? You know, I've been on the road for three months and I'm, I'm, I'm getting homesick. This is just exhausting. I'm tired. Well, yeah, it's a change that you're not used to. You have to change the way you think, the way you act, what you do for your own fitness, which Jim already alluded to, fitness and health and all the rest of it. Um, it, it's a change. And I think that's something that you really have to be prepared for, for the complete change in circumstance. I think the psychological impact of returning from a really big trip can be um, quite significant um, for some. The, the sense of loss can be huge. I mean, some people, mm. I've seen it happen, they fall into a hole, they feel completely lost and they're miserable and they're depressed. And I think that that comes from a mix of things. The sense of no longer belonging, um, the feeling that they're back in a place that perhaps they don't actually want to be anymore um, and the awareness that they have to spend their days unable to do the things that inspire them. You know, I quite often use one of the wonderful things about going traveling being that you're a stranger in a strange land and how fantastic that is to, to be able to, to learn by just being completely new to somewhere. But what about being a stranger in your own land, which is now strange, but without the romance and the inspiration uh, of the travel? And I think um, a lot of people find a them that they like when they're out on the road. And some come back to realize that being themselves back home again, you know, the new themselves is not going to be so easy. And I mean, for me, one of the things about getting back is the loss of flexibility that life on the road gave me, because all of a sudden I'm living in a, a structure, um, which I had far less of when I was traveling. And the other thing is, you know, we've probably all had this. We, we, when we're traveling, we get to a place and we're there for a day, sometimes even an hour. And we're already thinking, hmm, don't like it here very much. So what do we do? We pack up and we move on. Well, you come home and yeah, you're having to settle back into things. You don't necessarily have that freedom to pack up and move on, do you? Yeah. Right. I, I wanted to take it back to um, the psychological impact of travel and uh, how that affects you. I don't think any of us come back the same person. You, your experiences make you a different person. And my experience is a little different. Um, I went back to the job I was in and I found that the, and it was classified as um, the emotional intelligence that you gain from travel changes your perspective on a lot of things that you may have uh, made decisions differently on. And uh, to me, that, that was uh, really profound. And to this day, uh, it's 
uh, changed my perspective on different things. Um, just, just, just from from the way we travel, and that's that's part of travel. You know, it, it increases your emotional intelligence to that point, and you'll see it with different people and different cultures and all that sort of stuff. That um, when you get back, you look at um, other people and you think, you know. Where does that attitude come from? Why are you Why are you thinking like that? Uh, the world's not like that, you know. Uh, and I've yeah. seen it firsthand, and um, yeah. makes it makes a big difference. And as as far as physically goes, I, I, I mean, I, I've got mates who um, have lost their little fingers from scraping them on a road from racing and. Uh, little things like that, and, and that's motorcycling. You know, you know, you, you get an injured leg. I've got a, scars all over my legs and stuff like that from motorcycling. That that's going to happen if you ride a motorbike. And um, to me, they're just the barnacles of life, really, the life you want to lead. Brian, with, with perspective, you said that you noticed that going back to your same job. Did it create problems for you in, in any way, or was it difficult to deal with? Because all of a sudden, you're coming back to where people probably haven't changed since you left and you're coming back with a different attitude, they might look at you as just to say, well, who is this guy now? What, where does this yeah. attitude come from? Or maybe you don't fit in? Yeah, yeah. I did find that um, quite difficult uh, to, to start with. Um, uh, I, I made some suggestions in a rather um, big meeting and they, they looked at me strangely and said, why are you doing this? Why are you saying that? Well, you know, 10 years down the track, that's the way our government is going now. With, with certain things, and uh, you know, um, it's just uh, the way of the world. And I, I found it really difficult um, to come back. And I've got to say, when I was commuting back to work, and everyone's whinging and complaining about oh how bad the traffic is and how bad the congestion is, I just laughed. You know, when you travel through Delhi and places like that on a motorbike, <laughs> this is not a problem. <laughs> No, I was thinking about um, Bangkok and Saigon the other day, Brian. Uh, yeah. And I was just thinking, well, you know, just it's, it's, it's like um, riding amidst guided missiles, isn't it? Because you just never know. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's a typical example, you know, and, and you get to work and everyone's whinging and complaining, oh, it took me 40 minutes to get to work. I say, yeah, well, you know, I'm chill, but it doesn't worry me that much anymore. But sooner or later you get back into the same attitude. <laughs> That's what I was wondering because this is a question I always ask about when people come back from long-term travels. Did, does any of it stay with you? I mean, oh. I mean, you know, from when you came back, Brian, and you're, you're being the, the, obviously the problem at work in a way with your new ideas. And um, so, so, I mean, what was I saying? I've lost my track of thought. <laughs> <laughs> Just does it wear off after time? Oh, thank you. So does it wear off over time or, or did you, you know, have you held on to some of it? No, I've definitely held on to some of it. Um, Not the chilled in the traffic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to agree with that completely. <laughs> for, for example, you know, I've, I've got a group of mates and we're, they'd organised a ride and, and I was a bit late getting to the start and they'd all left and I thought, you know, big deal, I'm not worried about it. I just went for a ride by myself and sat on a tree in the middle of nowhere and had a, had a uh, little think about things and caught up with them at lunch and, you know, pretty chilled out about it. Before, I'd be stressed that, you know, I hadn't caught up with them, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Attitudes mm. like that do change. 
um, you see things differently. You see people differently, I think. And, uh, Priorities can change quite dramatically, can't they? And, and oh, what you yeah. just described there, I just think, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I think that's right. And you will never be the same. And uh, you know, I, I can think of, you know, I talk of Chris and Aaron a fair bit. Well, Chris and Aaron, you know, they did the same thing. They sold up everything. They were successful people in New York and sold everything they had and travelled. And um, they've come back and they've never gone back to the same things. I think Chris, Erin uh, actually said that she packed up all her suits from her, her job, didn't she, Shirley? Yeah, the power shoulders didn't power work shoulders, so well yeah, when yeah. she came back. <laughs> yeah. the that she they just, just threw all the clothes out after that. But, you know, here they are um, 25 years later. In South America. South America, still travelling, you know. Yep. Um, so, I, I yeah. think you, it gets into your blood. You get that feeling of, you know, what else is there? What You want to see more and learn more. It, it starts to become addictive after a while. Yeah. Is part I'd, of it that you're, you're the way you perceive yourself? Like, like, do you start to, I mean, I don't know. It's like, it's like if you had one, you know, a job as a, uh, I don't know, the head of something, and then all of a sudden you were no longer, you sort of have this perception of yourself as the head of something. And it, it's sort of, sort of hard to change away from that. I mean, you were special and now you're not, I guess is what I'm saying. And when you're traveling, you're kind of special. You go everywhere, you're the traveler, you're special. But when you come home, you're just another one of what you left. Well, most people uh, don't have a clue what you are. They just yeah. do not understand at all the concept. Um, everybody I know from before I went traveling and family and all the rest of them, oh yeah, Grant did this crazy thing and that's it. It's all over. You know, it's like my brother and sister have never even seen a slideshow about our trip around the world. Well, yeah. that's, that's no. just what I mean, though. I mean, so the, on your trip, you're special. You ride into town. People say, go, Grant and Susan, who are you? And we want to know about you and everything. Yep. But now you get home and your your family can't be bothered to look at your slideshow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I, I don't think it, it's I don't think it's become um, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. Like, I don't think it's, I'm not, I'm not saying it's arrogant or anything like that. I'm just no. saying that there's some magic taken away from you by returning home, uh, I would think. I think it's, it's more in how you perceive the world as opposed to how you perceive yourself. Like, I don't see myself as being anything particularly special. Yeah, I've done a few things. So what? Lots of people have done all kinds of things. Um, but it's, it's more a matter of you want to do more because your eyes have been open to the possibilities and the learning and the experience and the, the sensations, the feel, the smell, the food, the taste, everything about the world, as opposed to your own isolated little corner. That is, that is so exciting. Yeah. I think, I think you're absolutely spot on Grant. And I think one of the things is that, when you're traveling for a longer period of time, you start to realize loads of things about yourself that you didn't know were there. You start to recognize the things about you that you do like and also to recognize and think about the things that you don't like. And because you tend to be traveling in a very positive sort of mindset when you're on the road, because you've got all of this wonderful intake going on and the, the, the new challenges and the things that you're winning and so on, um, you, you start to create what I think of as being a recipe of you. And by the end of the time you get to the end of a big trip, you're quite comfortable with how nice that recipe is. And I think when you come back, um, you, you, you start to sort of adapt the you 
um, on the road recipe because some of the ingredients are no longer available or because new ingredients that may enhance you in other ways have become available because you are home. And that, that thought is one of the reasons why I never fear returning home from a trip because mm. it's not a negative. It's the beginning of something new and positive. I think that's really well put, Sam. And I think that's the perfect attitude and probably the secret to transitioning through it. I remember when I came home, I, I really felt what I guess I would call reverse culture shock. Just to come home to my own country and in some ways really feel disconnected from it or like I didn't recognize it. I remember distinctly landing um, from a flight from South America in Atlanta, Georgia and walking through the airport um, and looking in, you know, magazine shops or, you know, snack shops, et cetera. And they have magazines and on the covers were all these celebrities and discussions of superficial drama and gossip and garbage, just all the stuff that we see in our daily lives. And I had this really visceral, like sickening reaction. I thought, oh my God, is this, this, this what we're focused on in my country? Is this what people, you know, and it is, I mean, it is what people are are seeing and doing. And it, it really hit me hard that I didn't want to be part of that part of my society that values those sorts of things. So I really had to find a way to focus on keeping those um, things that I loved about myself and about the journey as kind of a priority in my life. And when I came home, then I incorporated incorporated different things into my life to kind of keep that trip still alive and, and not just in that transition process. When I first came home, I was really patient with myself. I slept a lot. Um, and I, I felt like kind of a sensory overload in a different way. When you first start off on a trip, on a long distance trip, you're really overloaded by language issues. And are you safe? Are you secure? Everything that you need for your daily life is the sensory overload, the struggle just to get water, just to get money, um, to find an ATM, to find the road, to you know, figure out how to read road signs and, and deal with traffic in each country is sensory overload. And then when I came back, I felt like, everything here was in a way sensory overload in, in a different way, the other end of the spectrum, just having yep. conversations with family and friends, um, just everything felt different, different priorities. And so I, I definitely did not try and be the person that I was before because that, that isn't possible. And that's, that's the beauty of having the journeys that we've taken is that we're, we're kind of awakening into this new version of ourselves. And as you, you know, really, thoughtfully put, Sam, kind of, you know, making a new recipe for yourself or adding in new experiences and ingredients into who you are. And so I, you know, really was thoughtful as I kept in touch with, um, I had thankfully kept in touch with family and friends while I was on the road with emails now and then, and not very often, but just so that it didn't feel like I was coming out of nowhere when I actually did come home. Um, but I got together with friends now and then and had conversations. And, and I remember being surprised at first and, and I shouldn't have been. People told me, you know, nobody really wants to hear about your trip or very, you know, they may have just a few questions like, oh, how was it? What was your favorite part? And then they would go back to talking about, you know, whatever issues they had going on in their lives. And I remember thinking when that did happen to me inevitably and many, many times with friends and family, 
that there's nothing wrong with that. They're just not curious people. And if the roles were reversed, I would be so curious. I'd be asking them a thousand questions. I'd want to know everything about that trip. Where did they stay? What did they eat? What were the roads like? What were the people like? What was the weather like? All of that. And that curiosity is what drove me to take that trip in the first place. So coming home you know, and expecting other people to have that sense of curiosity wasn't necessarily going to happen. Um, but, but that was okay. I knew that going into it and kind of made space for that. And I, I chose things, um, myself then that I wanted to celebrate in, in my own home and my own experiences and carry on with me into my life post trip. So I, you know, play different global music when I'm at home. I have a bottle of wine from Chile or Argentina once in a while. I try different recipes. I um, printed some photos for my trip, a couple of my favorites, and I've hung them on my wall in my house. And I, I certainly share stories. I stay involved in my community. Um, I stay connected to travelers who I met on the road. Um, and there's different ways that I celebrate that and carry that forward into my new life. But there's definitely a transition process through all of that. Oh, Chris, Michelle, you just hit so many nails on the head. Yep, and perfect. I think one, one of the things um, about getting home is we've all had situations where we've had friends who've come back from a holiday and they've sat and bored the living daylights out of us by reams of badly taken photographs and stories that are completely disjointed and you think, well, where was the start of that and where's the point and where's the ending, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that one of the things that for, for people who've tra been traveling for a long time, when they come back is do yourself a synopsis that you can share. And so what I mean by that is um, get a selection of photographs that you know have you, uh, for situations that you battled with and the things that blew you away, just a small selection of them. And sort out a few stories that you think that people will be able to relate to and have interest in. And just don't bombard them with loads and loads of stuff because they're not going to be interested. They don't have the same connections. Um, save those that level of storing for a, a Horizons Unlimited meet or something like that because then you're going to be surrounded by kindred spirits who are definitely interested. I think that very few people do continue to live all the aspects of the road when they return because you, you start to live in a society and you have to adapt, and, but that's fine. What's not fine is to forget all of the marvelous things that you've done and you've learned about the world and yourself. So you, find ways to use those skills when you keep back and find ways to keep learning. Um, when we're on the road, we make the effort to do things. When we're at home, we need to make the same effort to do things. So in other words, make a point of doing something different, inspirational, challenging, even every week so that, you know, we're still stretching ourselves. Um, just do things like you're not supposed to do, like go and swim in the middle of the winter. And yeah, no thanks. I'm, I'm shivering just thinking about it. Um, but go on shorter holidays where you're riding bikes in similar places to those that you might have ridden on the road. And this is um, like your little travel oasis in the midst of, of real life that just gets all of those, um, those parts of you singing and firing on all cylinders again. Step out of your normal routine. And I think when people... Make a plan to do things like that when they're consciously doing it. And Michelle was just talking about 
drinking some Chilean or Argentinian wine. Nice. Hanging some pictures up of that were really special from the trip. Great. Keeping in touch with some of the people that she met and got on really well with. Yeah, fantastic. It's this jigsaw puzzle of creating a new life, keeping the things from the trip and from you from the trip that you, you discovered and you learned and you valued and fitting in the new pieces of the jigsaw puzzle from the life that you're now needing to live in. Well, we'll take a break here. We'll just take a, a quick break for a few minutes, actually less than a few minutes. When we come back, I want to put a question to everyone. This episode is supported by freshtracks.co.uk. Freshtracks has been around since the 90s. And what they do is they work with companies or groups to inspire, motivate, challenge, build communication skills through team building exercises. And they work with all kinds of companies like Comic Relief and Pfizer and Mars. Have a look at freshtracks.co.uk. And if you're talking to them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Thank you very much, freshtracks.co.uk, for your continued support. Okay. One thing I'd like to ask everybody, and and sort of get everybody to to weigh in, I, I want to start with Shirley on this, is I'm curious if these changes happen to everyone the same way. I mean, is it kind of like, you know, you're lined up to walk through a mud hole and at the end of it, everybody's going to have muddy feet. And it doesn't matter who you are, who you started out with, you're going to come out with these, these changes. Or are there different kinds of travelers? I mean, I mean, is there a traveler that embraces the, the travel, you know, be it months or years, the long-term travel as a new lifestyle and becomes a new person through that uh, versus a traveler who may go and know they are on an adventure or, and they're very much in contact with home? So are there different kinds of adventures, uh, the, uh, the way they approach long-term travel, and does everyone come out with these changes? Shirley, can we start with you? Sure. Um, no, everyone doesn't come out with these changes. I've been sitting listening to the others, and I have a completely, well, not completely different, but a different perspective. I'm always great, really glad to come home. I, you know, I'm not the same person I was when we first went away in 2003, but I'm not that different either. Deep down inside, I'm the same person I was. I've just seen a lot of other things and experienced a lot of things that our friends haven't. You do have to be careful that you don't become the boring sod in the room who all they ever talk about was when we were in Iran um, because people don't really Do you don't have a story about being in Iran that you were going oh, to tell them? No, Jim. <laughs> but, um, you know, when you're home, other people's priorities are different. And just because you've experienced an overseas trip doesn't make you any better than them or your priorities any more important than theirs. You just have to adapt. I mean, certainly there are people that we don't see anymore that we used to see 20 years ago, but I think that's just a normal change of life that, you know, you your attitudes to things change. I can't bear wasting my time with idiots or listening to people bullshit on about stuff. I just don't have the time left in my life to waste my time with things like that. Maybe that's something that happened to me while we were travelling. I don't know. But for me, home is very special. The maybe a dozen people in my life that are super, super important to me and have been for decades, they will always be there. The idiots, no. They're not there now. And if they're idiots who don't see the the value of learning about other cultures and things, well, I can jettison them even easier. So maybe it's different for me from the others, but 
it's changed me, but not dramatically. I'm just a bit choosier now. Is that is that does mm. that sound a bit snobby? I don't know. And I think sometimes we can all prattle on about our trips, be it a trip to Bali for a week in the middle of winter or uh, two years travelling around the world on a motorbike and there will be people in the room who will be absolutely fascinated and others who will say, yeah, right, whatever. I don't think it's it sounds snobby at all. I think it sort of goes back to what Sam had said about coming back with, um, a, you know, a different person made of different ingredients, I guess, or a different, uh, you know, yeah. makeup where you know a little bit better about what's important to you and what you want to do and maybe even how much you want to put up with of, of other things. I mean, I think that's, um, that's probably refining ourselves a bit. Yeah. I, guess I think you're more discerning. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. I look around the room we're sitting in now and we've got, collections of stuff from from Iran. I'm, I'm looking at it now. Yeah. There's, there's a plate from Iran. There's a little shoes from Malaysia, the little tiny shoes. What else? Yeah. Uh, stuff from Vietnam. We got stuff from all over the place. Brian calls them my dust collectors, dust but every time I do dust them, which isn't I must say isn't that often. Yeah. Um you do it brings back memories and I think that's mm. the most important thing with traveling is the memories and no one can ever take that away from you no matter how your life has has to adapt to going back to what it was. And it does have to adapt to going back at what, to what it was because we don't live in South America on a motorcycle. Mm. We live we live in Australia in a house. Um, we have bills to pay. We have friends to see. We have family to nurture. Um, and I guess a lot of the experiences we have help us talk to our grandchildren about things that they can experience so they don't become insular. So that's a good aspect of the travel that you can pass it on to the next generation or the generation after that. But, you know, but then again, we didn't sell our house. No. We came back to the same house, the same pets, and the first trip the same jobs. So that makes our experience different because you're forced back into Brian was forced back into the traffic. He was forced back into the de decision-making process because we had to return to normal. We didn't have any money left to speak of. We needed money <laughs> to continue paying the yeah, bills. So, you know, circumstances force you to, to go back to some form of what you were before. I guess we'll never be exactly the same, but basically but we're the same. Is, there's always gaps. And as recently as three weeks ago, I was talking to some mates about uh, the crook we used to chase around, and and um, I'm thinking, what, whatever, you know, they're, they're saying about how he got killed by some other crook and all that sort of stuff, and I couldn't remember him because it happened while I was away. I knew nothing about it, <laughs> and and this this happened 15 years ago. Uh, so you know, there's there's going to be gaps in um, your. Local your, your local knowledge from your local community, wherever you were, were, were living before. So, yeah. But, yeah, I think about the the, the, the big one that, that, that gets me, and I'll probably get shot down in flames for this, but um, there was a guy and his mate who left in South America on, a, on an old Norton and travelled through South America and uh, saw the deprivation and the, the problems in that part of the world and the leper colonies that they went into. One was from a, a, um, a family of doctors and um, 
his life changed dramatically. Well, it did because it didn't end well for him. No, it didn't end well. He was executed. No, he was, Mm. uh, yeah, Che Guevara. Che Guevara (laughs) changed Mm -hmm. his life completely. (laughs) Yeah. From being a a doctor's son or a dentist's son, I think he was, um, to being a, um, a radical... Some called him a freedom fighter, some called him a terrorist. Mind you, um, when Brian came back and went into his very conservative workplace, he was he was always seen to be a bit of the radical, but when he came back with some of these highfalutin ideas from his overseas travel, he was definitely the radical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, so when you walk down the corridor, Brian, did people sort of turn and look at you sideways? <laughs> <laughs> there goes that Brian Reeves. What he's thinking this time? Ah, uh, well, you know, it's, uh, that things did change for me quite a bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I bet. Uh, I bet. So, yeah. Sam. What do you think? Did, does it happen to everybody? Does, does the change happen to everybody? I think that life is full of why junctions. And I think that whoever we are, whether we're family or friends or ourselves or another travellers, we come to these why junctions and one set of people go in one direction, another set, or maybe the overlander goes in another direction. I think there's still roads. And I think they own. They all have their own sets of issues, challenges, laughter opportunities, and all those sorts of things. And I think um, that some of the changes can be little, some of them can be quite big. Um, I was talking about this with Birgit earlier on today, and she said to me, don't you think, though, that if you're living in a town and a couple of your friends, they move from that town to the other end of the country, to the middle of the countryside, and let's say they start living on a sheep farm. Don't you think that when you link up with them again, they're going to have changed quite radically because of all of the things that they have then experienced that are so different to yours when you've been off traveling in South America or whatever else, but there's still differences. You're still the same people. You're still friends. You've just had lots of different influences. And actually the point is when you come back and you're linking up with people again is to be interested in them more than you expect them to be interested in you. She's a wise woman, your partner. And it just helps you to settle back into your environment again, your home environment. Um, I don't think your friends are ever going to really quite understand you because you are a bit weird from the experiences you have. To begin with, you're a person that they don't really know again. And it's not going to be instant. It's not going to be walking into the pub and it's like it was 10 years ago. Um, It's going to be a much more gradual process because they need to get to know you just as much as you need to get to know them. And I think when people return from a trip, if they show curiosity and interesting and learning about the people that they left at home um, and try to get involved in their lives in a a helpful, not... um, a pushy sort of way, then I think that people start to relax around you that much more because they're seeing who the you really is. I think if you give them time to to learn how to read you, then they will. Um, And then they start to be more interested in you and where you've been and, and so on. One of the things that I'm very conscious of now in comparison to um, when Birgit and I were doing the big trip is that there was no social media then. When we were traveling, we could be quite happily off the radar for a couple of months and nobody would have a clue where we were. 
now people can keep up to date with where you are and they can be seeing photographs of where you were that day and hearing the story of where you were that day. So actually, because of social media, if you choose to use it while you're traveling, um, people can be that much more up to speed with you and what you're doing. Um, so the, the dramatic change when you get back is perhaps not quite as great as it used to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Very much and so. it works in reverse because you're not coming back to a strange land. Mm. You've yeah. been yeah, reading you're the, much more your connected. Local, correct. You've been reading your local papers online. You know if there's been a catastrophe or, gosh, while we were away, we went through about three prime ministers in one, one <laughs> leg of our trip because of the volatility <laughs> of our mm -hmm. politics. So you do, you're not um, completely, uh, I don't know, isolated. Isolated. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. It's not starting all over again. I always remember the, the the thing coming back for me that stood out as culture reverse culture shock was after two years on the road, coming back, it was 98, and landing in Miami, picked up the bike, rode it to the nearest gas station, looked at the pump and said, oh, shit, how does, how does this work? I have no idea how to get gas out of this thing. I picked up the handle and... Click, click, and nothing. There's no, how how does this work? I had to go in to ask the attendant how to run the gas pump so that I could get gas. Can't. That <laughs> happens when we came across the border from Mexico into the United States. I mean, we just spent, what, three years in South and Central America. We rolled across the border from Mexico into the United States, and we needed some gas. And I went to the gas station, and there were um, three or four pumps, and... Um, there was a tiny little office with a tiny little window and bars on the window. Yeah. Um, and I went up to the, these pumps and I, I did exactly the same as you, picked it up and pressed, pulled the trigger and nothing was happening. And then I saw all of these credit card symbols and there was about 19 of the things. And I was thinking, but I haven't got any of those. Can yeah. I not pay with cash? And I ended up going over to the little office and rapping on the window. And I tell you, the guy who was there, I mean, I must have looked a right old mess, hair too long and covered with road grime and all of the rest of it. And he recoiled from me. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> what are you? Exactly. You don't know how to use a pump. What's wrong yeah, I mean, with you? He must have been watching, thinking, jeepers, what's going on out there? <laughs> I know exactly, exactly the same thing. Sam, back to what you were saying there, because you said about, the, you know, um, I think the example you gave with Birgit saying that, um, you know, somebody went off to a sheep farm and they've changed and you've changed. But the thing is, though, like for some people, if they went and sold everything and they sold, like, for instance, even in, in when we think of Michelangelo Greer, who sent in this, this question, they sold everything. Now, just by this way they describe it, sounds to me like they spent, you know, a long time in their life building things up and, you know, establishing themselves. And there's something about the way humans think, and I, and I think this this is sort of global, that um, we, we really value continuity. So continuity being that you do the same things, you act the same way all the time. Because if you don't, you'd look at as a, maybe a radical person or maybe even a, a crazy person because you don't always act or respond the same way. So there's a, there's a, a certain... Um, tendency for us to want to conform. So you've got these people who have went along in their life and they've sort of conformed to how, whatever their life was. But then all of a sudden, they just take everything out of the box, dump it upside down, have a yard sale and go off on motorcycles and then come back. That's got to be difficult for the people, regardless if they follow them on their trip. 
to be able to connect with them again afterwards because you think everything I knew was turned on its head here about these people. Can I just say something, please? I know I'm talking a lot this evening and, and um, it, it's, um, it's only the coffee. Um, Michael, Angela, good on you, mates. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yes, totally. Well, and I'm not questioning whether it's a good idea to do that. I like, I, I think that, you know, change is, is, is amazing and doing something, you've, we've only got one life to live here and, you know, you can do as little or as much as you want and you can try as many different things or try nothing at all. You know, you go to the restaurant, you can eat the same meal or you can try the whole menu and at least, you know, maybe one's good for one and one's good for another. I'm not questioning that, but I'm saying no. for those people that you return to at home, they're dealing with something that is, is, is a little unknown. And, and I can see that there's some, that there could be some, some potential for, I wouldn't call it conflict, but something like that, the, the ability to fit in. I mean, you've kind of moved on when you, you did your yard sale and you, you went off on a, <laughs> on an adventure. You're a different type of person. I think there's an opportunity for a disconnect, maybe a disconnection of some sorts. And so maybe that's where, you know, trying to stay connected to them, you know, your loved ones, especially your close friends, your family, um, through social media posts, as, as Sam has suggested, that's, that's really brought the world closer together. And it's a way that you can bring them along on your journey with you. That's a bit different, but also just through messages now and then maybe a birthday message or a holiday message or whatever. Um, and I think that that's where when you get together face to face and you just take a little bit of time to have a conversation and reestablish that common ground, um, I think that helps reestablish that connection too. Because I, I know there were and probably still are people in my family who think me going on the road for two years and selling my house and packing up stuff into storage was irresponsible. Mm -hmm. it, it was abnormal, uh, crazy, uh, whatever you want to call it. And they probably still think that. Um, and, and I can see how they would because it. I don't conform to what is, you know, quote unquote, normal life. You know, the, the standard, you know, 40 hour a week job, two and a half kids, mortgage for 30 years, la la la. Those things, you know, aren't necessarily for everyone or they can come in a different order or a different timeline than what you're mm -hmm. used to. Yeah. And I think that the world is really, thankfully, in, in some ways, exponentially changing. It's changing so quickly in the last 10 years and through social media, I think is a big part of that. We see that there are different perspectives and different ways of living your life and people are really opening up themselves to that. But there absolutely has been you know, a lot of time in my life coming back from the road that I've had some awkward conversations or, um, you know, really have met up with friends or family that I feel like I, you know, you don't have anything in common or you don't really know what to say to each other, but you make an effort to make that happen because it's still there. You, you've shared a history or shared memories and you may share some perspectives on some things, maybe not everything, but that's okay. You find that common ground, even when you come home from being gone. You just hit a nail on the head then. You may feel as a returning traveller that you know more, but actually there's a time and a way to say um, the things that you've learned, to introduce them into a, into a discussion, and there's a time just not to do it, to wait for the, the right time to, to say and do. Um, I, gosh, that sounds weird, doesn't it? But, well, but you I know, hope everybody knows exactly what I mean. You know yeah. different things, not necessarily more. Agree. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, not, you know different things. Better. Yeah. Exactly. And 
I love getting back home from a big trip, and that probably sounds really weird, but I see my home world with new eyes. Mm-hmm. I have a perspective that I didn't have before, and to me, that's exciting. Um, things that I took for granted, I appreciate so much more. And just the simple things like, huh, God, how am I, why did I just say just the simple things? The things like running drinkable water, mm-hmm. having a choice of food. Hot shower. Those sorts of things, they're just wonderful to return to. Um, but I returned with the habit of stopping to see things. And I returned with the habit of taking side turnings on purpose. And I asked the question, why? Much more often, because the road has taught me how um, to do that. I think travel long-term takes teaches a person to take off the blinders um, of survival and everyday life at home. And when, when we're at home, we, we live within a society and we have to work within that society. Um, being a complete rebel is that much harder to do and actually sometimes can be just completely counterproductive. But we all regardless of what sort of lives we have, we take all of the the good and the bad from those experiences that we have and we've put them in together in such a way that um, we can live a, um, a quality, a life that's quality to us as an individual and the people that are immediate around us. I think bashing our heads about the differences doesn't necessarily um, work. The traveller spends every day learning and adapting. And I think we do that at home too. Um, and consciously, we use the skills that we've honed on the road um, to do things better at home. I mean, Brian, you were just talking about that, um, going back into work with the skills and the knowledge and the, the new perspectives and so on. And I think that's one of the joys of coming back from a trip. Yeah. And well, as Shirley just said, we're not better. We just know different things, things yeah. that we might never have come across before. And we can contribute something useful, interesting, exciting, fun um, to a conversation. But knowing different things when you come home doesn't, I wouldn't think, always um, or isn't always an asset. Because, I mean, you know, you, if you, I don't know, if you grew up in a, in a coal mining town and, you know, you, and then you go travel and you come back with a different perspective and you change your perspective from that coal mining perspective you had as a kid. I don't know if you're going to be able to go into town and start to shake things up. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that, you know, long term that you might change people's perspective, uh, you know, what else, whatever you've learned. but. I could picture it um, being very difficult, you know, to try and use those new different things that you've learned to make any sort of change. But you're going to be doing something different. You're going to go after different things. Uh, I know when I came back, my my career path completely changed, totally different from what it was before. Um, I know um, a woman who said when she she was from Switzerland and had a banking job. you know, very successful. And when she came back, she was worried that she wouldn't be able to get a job. But it turned out that they were very, very grateful to have her international experience and her different points of view. And um, she proved that she was flexible and able to adapt to different situations. And that's hugely valuable to companies. That international experience is actually desirable in many corporations. I mean, if you're digging ditches, nobody cares. But you know, in a lot of businesses, international experience, flexibility, adaptability, able to learn new things and prove that you've done it is hugely valuable. Well, certainly if you're digging ditches, you, you won't get the job. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, sure. be, be, no, because you're older. Like, like if you if you left when you're 45 and you come back, like say 10 years later when you're 55, you're looking at a completely different work environment. And and I would argue that, um, or at least suggest that this would apply whether you're doing physical labor or even in a corporation. Because at 55, you're getting to that age where you're starting to be quite old, you know, compared to the young careful, people that have come in. Careful. <laughs> compared Very to the careful. young people that have come in. And the young people are thinking, come on, you know, old person, move aside with your old ideas, et cetera, because the new wave is coming in. I- I'm just pointing out like, because part of their question here is what is the cost of long-term travel? And, and, and to that point, in the example that I gave, the 45 to 55, you're coming back to a different workforce. I understand you've got emotional intelligence, Brian, and I, I heard you say that. I understand you've got that and you can apply that in some circumstances, but you've got a whole group of young people that are up and coming. I mean, they're in their prime and you're sort of, you know, looking at the sunset a little bit. No, I disagree. There's, there's a difference. The, there's a lot of um, old fashioned thinking, shall we say, in you're 65, you're done, you're out. Time to get rid of you and move aside. And a lot of this is country specific too. I know in the UK, um, looking to get a, jo- a new job at 55 or 60 is almost impossible. You're, you're too old. You're going to retire next year. You know, nobody wants you. It's definitely the younger mm-hmm. ones are coming up. But in a lot of situations, um, older means wiser experience. You can, you can uh, mentor the younger ones. That institutional knowledge, that historical knowledge that you've gained over the years and the experience you've gained from traveling and the international perspective are all extremely valuable in some situations. It depends on very much on the job. Isn't that just what old people say, though? <laughs> Careful, Jim. (laughs) I know somebody's thinking that listening to this. I I think think Grant's right. You know, my my, um, travels were utilised in that regard. I was put into areas where they wanted uh, different ideas on project management and uh, stuff like that, which um, was quite foreign to me to what I was doing before. But I recognised that, um, and they recognised that certain officers recognised that my skills would, would, would be good in that environment. And so I moved into, into there. And, that, and I'm sure that's um, part of uh, the experiences I gained from, from travel and uh, what we'd experienced overseas. And look, only a, well, what did we spend? A total of probably three years travelling. It certainly has changed us. There's no doubt about that. And we just... We're just different people, but um, I found it's, it's like I grew up in a small town. You go back to that small town, which I did recently, and the same people are there talking about the same things. And uh, I was introduced as, "Oh, this is Brian. He's travelled the world. He's done this. He's done that. He's done something else." Um, well, yeah, but I didn't talk about it. But uh, that's how they see me. Mm. See me differently. Mm-hmm. Yes. But exactly. if it was a technology sector, for instance, I mean, you you certainly aren't going to be oh. up on. Um, oh, I'm glad you brought that up, Jim. I've been sitting here thinking, yes. I mean, I mean, what about people who were traveling when um, emails first started happening and returning yes. from a trip, not having a clue how to use an email? Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, Does it, it, there are so many people that have, you know, that sort of thinking really kind of bothers me actually because you've had experience of various kinds and you can learn. It's a mm-hmm. matter of choosing to learn. I mean, exactly. we sent the, the very first email ever from Costa Rica in 1987. Wow. Mm. 
We were in you mean the, your the, first email. Yeah. No, yeah. we sent the first email from Costa Rica from the head office of Costa Rica Telecoms. Oh, I see. The, oh, that's pretty the, neat. In oh, the wow. boss of Costa Rica Telecoms office. We had originally tried, well, I might as well tell the story. It was We were originally using modems. Remember what modems are? Yeah. Some people know what a modem is. <laughs> Yeah, 1,200 BPS, bits per second. Um, and we were trying to use that in a, um, a telephone kiosk place, which is basically a line of telephones, and you just pay your money and you get to use a telephone to make a long-distance call. And we tried to hook it up, and the owner of the place just freaks out. What are you doing? You're going to ruin our, our system. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, okay. So where can I do it? So they sent us off to Costa Rica Telecoms, the office, which was in San Jose. We went in. No, we don't know what this is. You can't do that. And so we managed to escalate right to the boss of Costa Rica Telecoms. And he was fascinated by this story we gave him about being able to send email and connect with a computer to the rest of the world. And he was blown away. So we hooked it up and connected the modem to his phone sent an email and received an email and it just blew him away. Like, wow. Didn't <laughs> know you could do that. He was the boss. That's one of the reasons he was the boss. Yeah. So things <laughs> changed right there. <laughs> but my, my point of the, the whole subject is you can learn just because the technology changes and social medias come along and all that. It doesn't mean you can't learn. In fact, as a person who has traveled and learned and adapted to other cultures and dealt with situations, you have proven that you are flexible and can learn and are more valuable than somebody who has done exactly the same thing forever. And I get boring. that. I, I totally get that. And from your perspective, you know you can learn and, and you have you could you can develop skills. For instance, myself, my kids, I am much better at technical things than my my kids for internet, for all of that stuff. I'm much more plugged in than them. But if it came to applying for a job, they're just going to look at me very likely and say, I'm talking from the other side, like looking at mm -hmm. you, you're just old <laughs> you're compared to my son or daughter who would be applying for the same job. And of course they can do it because, you know, they're young, they hit the ground running. And and that's why I keep dragging it back to this because that's, you know, part of the, their question here with the Greer's is, is that cost. That's one of the things they were talking about was um, the the cost of long-term travel. Like, so would that catch up to you? I understand the emotional intelligence and the, and the thing that you're adaptable and things like that. But is there a chance of others looking at you and saying, you know, well, I, I, it's great what you've done, but you're just not up to the task. I've got so many young people here, you know, chomping at the bit because we're talking about things that you need to think about before you go for a long term. I, I have to answer that. I have to jump in and answer that. <laughs> if a corporation doesn't want to hire you because they think you're too old and you can't possibly do the job, you don't want to work there anyway. Yep. <laughs> Here, here. I feel like I'm poking Grant with a stick here, but it's fun. And I have, I have to say, I've hired a lot of staff over the years. I used to run, you know, a big hotel corporation and, and had multiple properties. And, and I have learned over the years um, that people that are more experienced or longer lived, older people are more reliable, level-headed, yeah. responsible employees, and they have better values. I hate to say that. I'm not trying to judge, but more consistently, they've uh, had enough trial and error in their life that hopefully they're they're moving away from the error phase of their life, and, <laughs> yeah. and they're better employees. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, 
And I but think- sorry, Hang on, let me just ask, sorry, to interrupt you, Michelle. Yeah, let me just no, ask I'm, you, though, did you learn that through corporate America or or because you're strange, because you've one of these people who went off and, <laughs> and done weird things? I mean, no, well, no, that was even before I took the trip. I mean, oh. I, I just so learned- it, you're naturally strange. That's, 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 that's a fact. Point, Sam. That's fair. That's a fact. <laughs> no, I used to hire, for example, in a hotel, I'll give you an example of a job. I used to hire shuttle van drivers. And if you think I'm going to hire someone who's a young who's going to be out hot rotting, even at, you know, 20 something, you know, and granted they have to lift suitcases and I'm very mindful of all of that. But I hired someone who was more responsible and more conservative in their driving habits to drive out to the airport, to have a conversation with a guest, be able to have, you know, a coherent and hopefully Mm -hmm. enjoyable conversation with a guest, as opposed (laughs) to someone who's got, you know, AirPods in and is checked out and not you know, not engaging with a customer at all. But I really do think that Grant makes the point. That's not necessarily, if if you come back with the skill set that you've got, whatever age that you're at, experience in the workplace and life experience, all of that, and you apply somewhere and they don't want you with the things that you bring to the table, you're at the wrong table. So go somewhere else because somebody's going to want that. And I can say as an employer who has sought that out in the past, even if I'm, you know, the minority, there's other people in the minority with me who value that. And I think the workplace and the workforce has changed, at least in my country, since COVID. And mm-hmm. I think that we have had in the U.S. a shortage of workers. Record unemployment is super low. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for people that think that they weren't hireable necessarily before or returning to the workplace after a long trip. I think they can still do that, um, mm-hmm. regardless of age, if you're looking at the right right opportunity and, and, um, you keep trying and keep the faith. I, I do think that if that is part of, uh, the equation for you, for being able to take a trip, I think you might have to look a little harder to find the right opportunity, but I, I think it can still be there. And I don't think it should curtail you from taking a trip if you want to do that. Do you you think there's any, any chance of someone being looked at? Like for instance, when Brian went back to work, if they could see, you know, if they, if they had a choice of hiring Brian back, cause he might, he went back to the same job, but maybe look at him and say, this person could be trouble because they, maybe they know too much or they're too opinionated, <laughs> not opinionated, but yeah, just know too much. You know what I mean? Like, so some people can come in and say, well, hang on a second. I think this, this should be run this way rather than the way you're doing it because they have so much experience. But I think there's, in my case, I mean, I think that there are people that, um, don't want to hire you because they know that you're, you're okay being independent and you may leave. Yeah. If, if they want you to stay forever in a job and you're a person who seeks new experiences or adventures, they might not see that as a fit and that's okay. And you have to respect that maybe you aren't the right person for a role that they're looking for someone to stay in for long term. So you've got to be realistic about it. Since when is any job today long term? Well, that's true. That that's changing, but but employers yeah. do want employees to be well. Let's say hungry, if if not desperate. I mean, you don't want an employee <laughs> that can walk out on you and say, "I don't like the coffee you're serving this morning." You're done. You want employees that sign up for loans and get mortgage payments and and do things so that no matter how much they hate seeing your face in the morning, they're going to come to work. Well, I yeah. don't want those employees, but somebody no, exactly. does. Some, well, corporate, <laughs> yeah. you know, when I first when I first started traveling. Um, I didn't get jobs easily when I first came back. Let's say I was away on a three-year trip. And when I came back, I didn't get jobs easily. And one of the, the employers actually said to me at the end of the interview, 
I've enjoyed talking with you, but I'm not going to employ you because you're not brainwashable anymore. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was your ponytail. No, I didn't have that then because oh. I had a natural fringe, so I didn't have to have the comb over. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> well, I, that's 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 exactly my point. That that is it right there. I mean, and yeah. there's a, an example that where it happens. I've but used, it's less now. I've used I, this I phrase from time to time. It, I, and forgive me, I'm sorry for interrupting. Um, just that that brainwashing thing. I've made the comment in several conversations for anyone who's ever seen the movie The Matrix. And those are old movies from 20 years ago. But The Matrix series was about this guy that woke up from this world and he was a new person and he couldn't go back into that old, wor old world. And that's the comparison that I've always used after taking a long trip is that you are a different person in some ways and you can't expect yourself to go back into that old box, but that's okay. There's other boxes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought that movie yeah. just came out. Yeah. <laughs> it, was like yesterday. it was recent, Jim. <laughs> I know people who have been in big business and they've gone away and they've traveled. And when they've come back, they've just thought, why do I want to work stupid monster hours to earn money that I can't spend because I'm working stupid monster hours? And, you know, do you remember that time we were in Uganda and we spent those two weeks working in a school and we were just teaching the school kids? Wasn't that a wonderful thing to do, to see those kids just growing from what we were teaching them? Let's train and become teachers. And off they went. And that's what they've done because the road taught them a different way of life. They discovered new things about themselves that they like better. Great. Fantastic. And if you feel like helping, so, you don't have to go to a third world country. No. I'm sure um, all of our countries are the same as Australia where there are so many small charities and welfare groups that call out for volunteers. Oh, yeah. So you don't have to yep. be travelling through South America and find an orphanage that needs someone to um, oh. to lend a hand. Look, look local. Mm -hmm. Yep. So what I'm gathering here from, from what everyone said, what we sort of learned from this is that there is a cost, you know, that it will cost you in some, maybe your mainstream or, or not even mainstream, but maybe your regular jobs in that you may not get them, you may not want them, but the other points that have been made is that you need to maybe work a little harder to try and find something, but you'll probably want something different. You won't want one of those jobs. So you got to work a little harder and and find something that that sort of suits your style but from what you guys are saying that everyone seems fairly confident in that it shouldn't although it may make it more difficult it shouldn't remove you from from finding work and sort of reintegrating that way earning Absolutely. money again yep. right yeah what about the psychological cost is there a psychological cost i mean does does anyone have a, a real sense for the psychological cost Mm. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. You know, just just be very open here. Not no one's gonna hear this. Oh, that's great. That yeah, that sounds like I'm talking to a shrink here. <laughs> just I, just lean back and talk. I remember I I blogged the whole time that I was on the road for two years, and actually even blogged a little bit before I took off on the trip about how I was packing, how I was preparing, what I was learning, testing out equipment, et cetera. Um, and then blogged a bit when I came back about what it was like to come home and transition back into, you know, normal life or real life, getting a job, finding a, a place to live, doing all of that. 
And I remember um, I posted, I think it was, I came home in the summer of 2015 and in December. So I'd been home about six months. I wrote a blog post called What's It Like? And I remember having so much feedback about that particular blog post. And it was very vulnerable, very open. And I talked about, you know, just how... Um, it, it was, it was a process and it, it was, I, I don't know that I would even now in hindsight, you know, nine years out or eight years after writing that, I don't think that I would say I was depressed, um, because I don't, I'm, I'm luckily not a person who battles issues of depression. I struggle with anxiety. So I'm an overthinker and over planner. And I struggled with needing to have, you know, a vision of what my life was going to be like when I came back. I needed to have control of stuff. I wasn't resting until I had a place to live sorted. I had money sorted. I had, you know, lots of other things kind of back on the table and back in place where they needed to be for me to have this normal life. But I definitely um, struggled connecting with people, um, adjusting to life, coming back off of the road, you know, this, this idea of reverse culture shock and, and coming back into, you know, everything being the same every day, being easier. I appreciated all of that. I appreciated hot showers and toilet paper and things being simple and, and, um, all of that and being safer and that I could relax, but everything was still an adjustment. Um, I remember sleeping a lot that first six months, and I I don't know in hindsight how much of that was just from sheer exhaustion of having been on the road and how much of that was from um, maybe just being overwhelmed mentally or psychologically and just needing to take a break and check out. And I remember actually having what I thought was maybe a form of ADHD. My I had to, I know this sounds dumb, but I feel like I had to rewire my brain a little bit because when I was on the road, I was paying attention to physical traffic and watching my back and, you know, the things coming in from the left or from the right or the speed of cars in front of me or, you know, focusing on different things. And when I came back to home and conversations with people, I actually had a hard time having conversations with people. I remember going to a bar, a loud bar with a group of friends. There were like six or eight of us and, and struggling to hear them and actually focus on the conversation and follow what the, the topic was. And it just, it just felt different because it wasn't an environment that I had been in like that. So it, it took me, you know, a few months and it was, I, I was home six months before I started back to work. And I did happen to go back into the same field of work that I was doing before a uh, big hotel management, managing a team. Um, and I, it, it was what I had to do to put money on the table and get myself set back up. <clears throat> and I don't regret it, but it was, it was not necessarily where I wanted to be. And so I, you know, I did it for a while and then I used it as a, a, a launch pad to go into my next version of myself or whatever it is I wanted to do with my life. And I, I think that um, it was all a process, but I know in hindsight, I, I struggled. And I remember in that blog post, I talked about that, being disconnected from people, having a hard time relating, uh, learning how to refocus, shifting priorities. And I think that was the big thing that I learned on my trip. My priorities were very day-to-day focused. And I was, um, you know, focused on the, the basic, you know, essentials of life, shelter, food, safety, um, and coming back home and thinking long-term and having long-term goals and long-term calendar and and all of those things just felt a little overwhelming. So it, it was a lot. Um, and I found too, I was in a relationship at the time 
Um, and I found that my travel partner and I, and, and I apologize, I'm not speaking on his behalf at all. Um, but we, we had a different pace when we came back, I had different priorities and reintegrated into life and made different choices than maybe he did coming back in off of the road. And I think I really, in hindsight, had to allow myself and him a lot more, um, grace and forgiveness about how we came back in from the road and what that felt like. So it, it can definitely be a process and it's, it's worth it. I don't regret it. I, I value all of it. Um, and I still, you know, would probably not change any of it. Um, but it, it's a lot. There's no question. When you said you were in the bar trying to talk with your friends and you couldn't concentrate, is that because you're trying to watch your back or, or what was the issue? <laughs> so that's how, no, it was so just... Well, no, it's a serious question. I mean, it, it, I, I, do, I couldn't quite get from that. Like, what I, was the difficulty? It, I think it was everybody talking at once and there's a TV on behind us or like three sports TVs on and there's just all this noise mm. and there was just so much distraction and me, my brain literally couldn't juggle. I mean, I used to sit at a boardroom table and listen to three different people argue and talk over each other. And I could hear every, every person's perspective and process it all very quickly and come up with a decision at a boardroom table in an instant. But as I was sitting at that table with a bunch of friends, you know, with all this background noise and just different people's voices and lack of maybe Latin accent. I don't know, whatever it was. I, I just was, I remember sitting there thinking, I, I just, this is too overwhelming. I can't understand everybody talking at once. And uh, yeah, whatever it was at that moment, it just felt like a lot. I felt very removed from my old life because we used to sit around and have beers and watch football or, you know, whatever on a Sunday afternoon. And, and that wasn't something that interested me when I came home. So when you got back, you were actually slower than when you left. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think it's gotten much better yet. So. <laughs> it's one of the beauties of travel. I love yeah. it. Yeah. People say to me, Sam, you're so patient and calm about stuff. And I say, well, yeah, the road taught me that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Michelle, I did want to ask you though, because you did mention that, you know, you're lucky you don't suffer from depression. You don't have to deal with that. I'm wondering if you were a different type of person, if that would have been more difficult for you to reintegrate yourself, to learn back the ways to, to deal with things, to listen to your friends, all those things. If you were a person that maybe was predisposed to depression, could that sort of send you in a different direction, you think? Oh, I, I think so. I mean, I, and I think for me, you know, I've, I, I, I did things, I guess apparently I've, and I don't, I learned a lot about myself. I have learned that I like to make myself very happy. <laughs> that sounds so basic, but also very dumb and self-indulgent. But um, when I came home, I missed things about the road. So I posted a couple of pictures on the wall and I cooked my favorite meal from Argentina where I bought a bottle of wine um, stayed in contact with friends, but I did other things. And Sam, you know, made some really good points about this at the beginning too. I planned a little getaway and I'm, I still rode my motorcycle. So I'd ride to the grocery store, or go riding in the black Hills where I live, which happens to be gorgeous. So I kept things, um, that I needed to make myself happier about being where I was. I kept those at, 
at the foreground. And I made sure that I had bright spots in my calendar and things that I look forward to. Um, I stayed in contact with people that I'd met on the road and kind of followed their journeys and lived vicariously through them. I watched uh, travel shows on TV or documentaries or followed people on YouTube that I knew were still out on the road as a way of still feeling kind of engaged in that. And it helped me bridge the gap from that travel life into off the road life again. Um, and those were things that helped keep me happy. And I, I don't think I thought about them consciously. It was just subconsciously. Those were the things that kept me happy for a while. Um, and I think a person that maybe struggles with finding happiness or struggles with any kind of depression just maybe should be that much more prepared um, and know and, and plan and set themselves up for better success um, so that they they're okay and they at least understand that that maybe is part of the journey it isn't necessarily for everybody I know that there are people that come home um, and don't miss a beat I know that there are and so maybe I'm somewhere in the middle of the spectrum maybe I'm at one end or the other it doesn't matter the the point is find what works for you and don't be afraid to ask for help I mean reach out to family or friends or whoever you need you know, to, to make sure that, you know, you have support uh, through that adjustment phase and, and that you're, you know, building that new life for yourself and, and you're focused on the right things. Just because your trip is ending, I think some people are focused on seeing that as a negative. My trip is ending. No way. I mean, nobody's ever going to take that away from you. Focus on what's next. Focus on the future, on sharing that. One of the things that I loved doing the year that I came back was making the rounds um, at Horizons Unlimited events. And I went, um, I think, to Horizons Unlimited in uh, Mariposa, California, to Nacusp in BC, um, spoke the next year at Grant, Colorado, a few different places, because that was also something that was important to me was sharing that experience. And I was uh, feeling like I was paying back what people had given to me because before I went on the road, I had attended some HU events and learned a lot and was really um, thankful for those tools. So I wanted to come back and pay that back too. And those were things that were bright spots in my calendar that helped me get through that transition process. Wow, there's just so many good things in what you're saying, Michelle. I've just like so many points. It's, by the way, yep. Michelle, if we're talking too fast, just let me know. I'll, I'll try and get everybody oh, to slow yeah. down. <laughs> but, but, but there's so many good points you make, Michelle. I yep. want to go back and underline them all, but I'm not going to. You're just going to have to go back and listen to that again because <laughs> there's just so much in there. Thank you. That was great. I wanted to say here, here at least 10 times. Another nail hit on the head. I was going to say, Michelle, that's exactly what we felt when we came back to. We did exactly the same thing. You know, we went to Horizons gave uh, talks at Horizons, still talk to people about it. And in fact, we've got one coming up soon uh, uh, about the same thing. But, you know, you're sort of reliving your, your journey. But talking, going back to um, what uh, they were saying about the, their, their, their coming back from their trip, their, um, you, you can develop your own skill set to come back to, Michael and Angela, you know, you when you're coming towards the end of your journey, you know, think about what you're going to do when you get back. Prepare yourself for coming back. That's the, that's the way I'd look at it. Some people can do it, as you said, Michelle, straight away. Others perhaps need to be a little bit more prepared. And I don't know what uh, Michael or Angela did in their previous lives or careers, but, you know, maybe upskill yourself to get back into it if that's what you want to do. But for me, things changed. I'm still writing for a magazine. 
right, from we wrote some articles mm. for a magazine, and that's just continued in a different vein now. Um, so our travels changed our direction in that regard too a little, even though we're now so-called retired. Um, but I get my my little kicks out of going for my rides, maybe right across the country or whatever, um, or um, writing for a magazine. Easy. Sure. No, no, I don't know what to say. You're on the spot there. Yeah, I did. Because perfectly, to be perfectly honest, the mental problems, the the anguish and things for me was the reverse, was missing home while we were away rather than missing the road when we came back. Yeah, that's why I was asking about does everyone experience it the same way? I mean, it can can you expect if you're going on a long on a long term travel trip, can you expect to come back and feel this way, or or do people travel differently? Like like, and I, and I was kind of picturing it as, as somebody who might like like I think in, in in most for most of our panel here is um, the type that throws themselves into travel and becomes the traveler that becomes your life and and who you are, and you sort of really give into it. And there's other people who are doing it. And maybe surely you're more like this, where you're experiencing it. You're, you're, you're experiencing everything, but you're essentially um, on a trip and you know you're, you're, you're going back yeah. to your same thing, you know? Yeah. Well, it got to, and, and got to I a don't point. Think we cut I'm... ours short, didn't we? We cut out some of our trips short. Well, well you had enough. Yeah. Yeah. But it, and it's because well, you know, sixteen. It's not like we came home in a fortnight. No, we didn't. Home, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, we could have done a little bit more. And you said, "Look, I really feel like I need to go home." Well, you know, you're sharing the, the road. You you sit down and you make these decisions together. And, and I couldn't do what some people do and come home for a break and then go back. No, no. I think if I'd no, done that not. when I was really feeling homesick, I wouldn't have gone back. Mm. I would have stayed at home. But that doesn't mean, yeah. Jim, that I enjoyed the trip any less than Brian or um, no. experienced it any any differently. It's just that I got homesick and for me coming home was a really good thing. It wasn't a negative thing. I adapted back to life at home really quickly. And as I said before, though, I mean, it's, it's different in that I have jettisoned some baggage that I didn't <laughs> need and... You know, I don't. I have different priorities now, but I still, I still like being here and being part of a community here. And and um, you know, I volunteer and get involved in other ways with my local community than I did, you know, before. Which you've never done before. No, that Mm. in that aspect, seeing how people help overseas has helped me become better at being a community person here. Yeah, I think everybody is different. I think we have to remember Mm. that every single one of us is going to have a different trip. We're going to have a different experience. It's going to be really unique. And when we come back, our experience coming back is going to be unique too. And I was thinking about um, Shirley's comment about if you came back, you couldn't go back out again. I'm thinking about Peter and Kay Forward, who over 14 years hit every country in the world. And they came back every year for two, I can't forget, it was two or three months. And they came back and checked in with things and lived a little locally. And, and then they went back on the, on the road again. They didn't stay on the road for 14 years solid. You know, three months of the year, they were at home in Australia. Okay. That's their way of staying connected and keeping going. And 
checking in with their kids. Uh, I think their youngest kid was 16 when they left on their first on their trip. So it was, yeah, how's the kid doing? You know, how, how is he doing? <laughs> kind of important to check in. Um, so I think we have to remember that, that we're all going to have different requirements and we're going to have different return experiences. And it's okay. Don't yeah. try and copy somebody else. Just because Michelle did what she did and I did what I did and Sam did what he did, it doesn't mean that you should copy that. Do what works for you. Correct. None of us are right and none of us yep. are wrong. That's yeah, right. Absolutely. Well said. It's, no, I'm not going to say it. Sorry. <laughs> hang on, hang on one second here. So, so Shirley, do you have to go for your hair thing now? No, another 15 minutes, Jim. <laughs> so, so Sam, did you want to do that and, and step out on the, on that board again, get near the end of the plank? <laughs> I, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm totally agreeing with everything the guys have just said about us all being individuals. It's like um, people said to me at one time, oh, I don't know why you're going that way. It's all been done before. Yeah, but not by you. Been, <laughs> not by exactly. You. It's it's not been done by a person with my background and my instincts and my stupidity and my ability to fall off, or the politics at the time, or the weather pattern at the time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We're all individuals, mm -hmm. and that's what makes overlanding such a special thing to do. And overlanding teaches us to be individuals and the value of being individuals. And yes, it does take time um, to um, an ability to, to adapt when we get home again. But as overlanders, we're skilled at being adaptable. Um, our awareness and common sense skills are honed. And I think that something we can all do, regardless of who we are, is think about treating coming home as being the beginning of a new adventure. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I think I want to. I want to leave it there. I mean, that's 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 a beautiful ending right there. Did anyone... Well, I'm, I'm going to spoil it, Jim, because there's one. Of, there's a couple of other things that I would like to say, and there are a couple of quotes that what? are kind of relevant. Marcel Proust: "The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes, and we bring those new eyes back with us." And Henry Miller said. One's destination is never a place, but a new way of seeing things. And that's what we learn how to do when we're overlanding. Yep. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Okay. Go goodbye, everybody. Michelle was about to say something there, but then she held it. No, I didn't. Wasn't that you? <laughs> <laughs> Who was that? Somebody took the deep breath and went, no. <laughs> Possibly me. Was Somebody tells Sam he's talking bollocks. Quick. <laughs> was it Shirley? Uh, it's okay, Jim. It was Shirley. <laughs> Sometimes I just you know. have to learn to shut up. No, no. Everyone said really, really good things, but you know, as a as an individual, we're all members of a big group tribe, and so many people think that being an overlander is an individual thing, but really, we're all a bit a bit the same. So it's sort of indivi same individuals. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Human beings are tribal creatures, aren't we? We, mm. we need each other. We, we, yeah. Well, most of us do. Most of mm. us are very social. Yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts on the, on the cost of, um, of long-term travel? <laughs> Just one maybe that I, I wanted to chat about for a second maybe, and one of the questions that they raised 
was about the physical cost. Yes, I was just going to read the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I, and, well, I'm sitting here with an achy titanium leg. So <laughs> it, um, it just happens to ring true at the moment. I've got, I've got a special souvenir from my trip. Um, then no, I, I mean, that's obviously something that I'll have for the rest of my life. I, I mean, it could have easily happened in my own country, just taking a spin around the block. So, um, but I'm curious to know what everybody else has experienced here, physical costs from long-term travel. Um, nothing for me. To get for Sam? No, no, no. <laughs> Sam. <laughs> Poor Sam. Sam. Bye now. See you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm not going to visit a hairdresser today, Shirley. I'm actually going to go off to have my ball patches polished this morning. <laughs> what do you use for polish, Sam? Oh, elbow grease. <laughs> Teacup works well. I must admit, um, just to, to give Sam a break, because we do always take the piss out of Sam about his accidents. Um People talking about staying fit on the road. When we did our first trip, I used to do a regular radio broadcast into Melbourne with a a very funny man who was a musician and breakfast radio announcer. And we were talking about something one day and he said, Charlotte, you'd be so fit. You're kidding me, right? I sit on a motorbike for six or eight hours a day. I am probably the least fit (laughs) I've ever been. Um. Yeah, bike fit, that bike fit. Well, bike fit, yeah, bike but I couldn't fit. have walked 10, 10 yards or pulled the skin off a custard. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> I could sit on the back of a bike and hold a helmet up with my neck. My neck muscles were strong. But it's a completely different fitness and you just have to be careful about things you eat and just being a little bit more conscious of those things to keep your, your innards fit. And try and walk. You know, it's 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 a different it's a different thing on the road. Yeah, I've mean, seen doctors and dentists on the road, or I have anyway. You have. You became the world's best dentist expert. <laughs> yeah, well, you can get all these facilities on the road wherever you wherever you need them. Um, but uh, yeah, physical physically, no, I've, I've got nothing that. Uh, cause me any dramas, but Sam's taken my share. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's taken one for our team, the other team, the team before him, and the next team. <laughs> Sorry, bit, bit of a disaster magnet, but there's always a smiley story that comes at the end. Yeah. And you don't have yeah. a titanium leg. I reckon that has got to be the souvenir of, of all that you actually have a titanium That's cool. <laughs> No, I don't have titanium. I have a fair bit of metal in me in various different places. And when I first started getting those bits of metal, I did bleep when I got, went through metal detectors at airports. There was one that they pulled me over because the guys were, well, hang on a minute, how are you bleeping? And they put, made me put my arm into the, the hand x-ray, uh, you know, the luggage machine, so they could all see. And there was about a crowd of about eight or nine of them all looking, come on, come on, come on, come on, They probably still talk about yeah, quite. Yeah, that idiot. Uh, um, uh, the, I think the biggest an- injury for me was um, slipping three discs on the road, and that's always Ooh. with me, and you, you always have to learn to deal with it. But um, I'm very lucky. I don't have any achy metal bits. Sympathy, <laughs> Michelle. <Yeah. laughs> no, I, like I said, it could have ha- easily happened here. I mean, 
So no, no regrets there. I still have my leg. I'm very lucky. I was taking very good care of in Canada when it happened. So thank you to all of the people that made that happen. Um, yeah. And I, you know, when I came home, it was probably about a year after I came home, I was still having, actually, I had some sinus infections and did, I did a fair amount of doctoring on the road in two years, had lots of tummy upset bits and had to take antibiotics for traveler's diarrhea and sinus infections and spider bites and all sorts of stuff on the road. But um, I didn't really have anything that was a long-term issue for me. That I, pollution is a real concern when you're riding. And I remember, I'm sure all of us can attest to that, the, the black on your face as you take your helmet off at the end of the day yeah. from inhaling all of the exhaust mm-hmm. on the roads. Mm-hmm. And you have, you have to wonder if that does anything. But I mean, I haven't had anything really that I know of that's related to that. So I, I feel very lucky that um, other than that one piece of titanium, I came through pretty unscathed. Yeah. I, I mean, we didn't actually spend that much time in big cities. We went to big cities if there was something specifically we wanted to see or mm. if there was a visa that we needed to organise. And the rest of the time, we just weren't in them yeah. or we were just passing through. Yeah, yes. me too. Yeah, same here. I, th- I think we need to think about the amount of time you spend in a highly polluted environment, knowing what we know about pollution, isn't going to be very high. So it really doesn't matter. I mean... They say that if you are a lifetime smoker and then you quit 10 years later, your lungs are just as good as a never smoked. I'm not sure how true that is, but I'll just take that as gospel. Um, So if you're doing a few days here and a few days there in a highly polluted environment, you get out and you're going to be fine. So it's not something I worry about. You deal with it. I mean, living here in British Columbia, fires and smoke is so bad that they're telling people you shouldn't let the kids shouldn't go out and the old folks shouldn't go out. The pollution is so bad here from fires. Well, yeah, okay. What are you going to do about it? Just do your trip. But, so you're saying um, it's okay to eat the chicken that's all black from the barbecue? That's fine then. <laughs> yeah, as, long as, it's pale, as long as it's red in the middle. You're very, very red, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think you have to be careful and you have to be sensible and all things in moderation is probably the, the number one thing to keep in mind. Yeah. A little of this and a little of that probably isn't going to kill you, but it's part of the part is, of life. There are some things when you're traveling that you, it pays sense to, you know, it, it makes sense to pay attention to. For, for example, in Southern Africa, Bilhartia. Um, Bilhartia, it comes from a snail and it infects you through the skin and actually it can do your internals a lot of damage yep. as in, a lot of damage. So when you leave the Bilharzer area, get yourself blood tested. It's not expensive. It's not time consuming, but it is peace of mind. Mm-hmm. I have friends who four years after they finished their trip were diagnosed as having Bilharzer. They were very lucky because they hadn't got to the blood in the urine stage. Had they got to that stage, then they would have been in big trouble. Um, so yeah, just... Use common sense. When you're in malaria areas, do what you've read is the right thing to be doing. Um, when you move through a, um, a big-time disease area, then get yourself tested afterwards. And Brian, I don't know about you, but I found some brilliant des- dentistry along the way. I think one of my favorite dentists was in Thailand. I had no idea what amazing quality dentistry I could find in Thailand. And the, the work that I had done um, 
was so cheap it wasn't even worth my while claiming on my travel insurance wow. yeah, and I still yeah. have that dental work now yeah mm-hmm. well I, I had the girl in Chile who gave me a kiss when she'd finished my dental work <laughs> wow I, I, I just still don't know my heart's beating fast <laughs> oh she couldn't help herself uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay on that uh, terribly downhill slide maybe we should move maybe we should move into plugs it could only get worse can I say goodbye now and um, I will speak to everyone next month <laughs> Looking forward no, to it. Okay. Because Thanks, you know, Charlie. I can just preempt it, Jim. I don't have a plug, so you won't miss me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good to know. Talk to you soon. Bye now. Okay. Bye. See you, Shirley. Okay. So for plugs, shall we start with Michelle? Um, sure. Yeah, um, I wanted to remind everyone that um, I am president of the Women's International Motorcycle Association, the USA chapter. And so if there are any women riders out there in the U.S. um, that are interested in becoming a member, we are still doing free membership. You just have to go to wima-usa.com. That's W-I-M-A-USA.com and click on the become a member button and uh, join up for free. It only takes a second. Um, But I also wanted to mention something about that. Um, there is not a chapter in Canada. So um, Mm. we have been working on that. We're hoping to find someone to start one. But in the meantime, any women writers from Canada who are interested in joining us are welcome to do so. We already have, I think, uh, a dozen or so Canadian women who are members of WEMA USA. So um, we'd love to have you be part of our community. And we're hosting our international, excuse me, our national rally, the USA rally in Oregon this year in September. So uh, feel free to go to our website for details. And WEMA is is uh, international as well. It, did it start in the U.S.? It, start, it was started by an American woman in 1950. So this will be the 74th year of it wow. um, by Louise Sherbin. Yeah. And, and there was a book published um, by Kate St. Vogel this past year um, about the history of WEMA and the founding of it um, and just a really fascinating history. And yeah, it is international. We have chapters in 40 countries around the world and uh, there is also an international rally held every year. And then some of the countries do their own national rallies. So just a, a great way to meet women writers. If you're interested in traveling to another country, we're happy to connect you. So you have some resources and, and someone on the ground so that you feel like you've got some support if you need it. 74 years. Yeah, 74. That's amazing. Wow. It is. Okay. Michelle, and, and you, the, the book you mentioned, what's the name of the book? Um, Iron Horse Cowgirls by uh, Kate St. Vogel. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you. Brian? Can you let Michelle have the link for that, please? Uh, can you let Jim have the oh, link for that, Michelle? happily. Thank you. And we'll put the link in the, in the show notes, of course. Nice. Brian, what have you got? Uh, I, firstly, Michelle, I pushed that barrel for Wima every chance I get when I came across a lady rider and I think it's a great organisation and fantastic that um, the women get involved with it. Um, Thank you. Yeah. uh, Cheryl and I are actually going to be at the Sporting Motorcycle Club of Geelong uh, on the 12th of March. Uh, So if anyone wants to come along, um, we'll be doing a bit of a chat on some of our international travels and um, talking about all things motorcycling, even locally. So... 
Um, the Sporting Motorcycle Club of Geelong's uh, office or, or club rooms are at um, the intersection of Barwon Terrace and Ballerine Street in South Geelong. So that's on the 12th of March, and we'll be there from uh, about 6, 6.30, 6.45 onwards and uh, spending a pleasant night down in Geelong with um, some like-minded people. And this came about from um, two guys that I I uh, saw on the side of the road. One of them had a flat tyre, so I helped them out, and um, they decided that uh, they needed a bit more assistance than normal, so they ended up, <laughs> ended up leaving one of their bikes in my shed and saw all this stuff in my shed and said, where have you been on this bike? So I told them. And anyway, long story short, I'm going down there to give them a chat. Oh, very <laughs> nice. Nice one. Anything else for you, Brian? Uh, no, that's it this week. Sam, how about you? Well, first of all, this is a shout out for Birgit, who's just bought me a large glass of pear schnapps. <laughs> that's nice. Cheers, <laughs> Cheers everybody. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> now, now, I have some, um, some fun to share, but first, a scowl. Um, my audiobooks into African under Asian skies are still not back up on Audible. Uh. Oh, gosh, it's driving me bonkers. But I have been promised that they will be um, up again by the end of February. So, yeah, four months. But anyway, keep your fingers crossed, please, everybody. Um, yeah. Um, in the meantime, they are available from Apple, Spotify, and audiobooks.com. So, yeah, fingers crossed for the end of this month for them being back. But um, here's the good news. I'm delighted. My next um, presentation tour is coming together really well now, and I'm going to be seeing a lot of the USA on this trip too. So it's going to start off at uh, Motorcycles of Dulles um, on April the 20th. And from there, I'm going to Horizons Unlimited, Virginia uh, for April the 25th. Then I am going to European Cycle Sports in Plano, which is in North Dallas, Texas. And I'm going to be there on May the 11th. Then I am going to be at Overland Expo West in Flagstaff. And it's years since I've been to Expo West. This is the, the first of the expos that I ever went to. So, um, yeah, I'm delighted to be back there. And that's going to be from uh, May the 17th. Then I am going to be at Westside Motorsports in Spokane in Washington on June the 6th. And um, gosh, it's quite a few years since I've been up there. So I'm really looking forward to being back there. And um, I'm going to be finished off this trip at the BMW Motorcycles of American National in Redmond, Oregon on June the 13th. So um, I'm actually waiting for three more BMW dealerships to um, confirm or to say no, um, and I'll be sharing those on the next show. But in the meantime, um, the, the dates are all um, coming up on my website, which is sam-manicum.com. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to being back in the States again, really looking forward to it. And uh, I hope that I'm going to get the chance to meet up with um, raw listeners as I'm traveling. Hey. Grant, I am really looking forward to being back at Horizons um, in Virginia again. It's um, two or three years since I've been there, and I was made so welcome. It's such a good, fun bunch of people. Yep. And, They're great. Uh, yeah, it's going to be really nice to link up with so many friends because I made a lot of friends um, at, at that uh, um, meet. It was, yeah, just brilliant. So it's going to be great. Good. Glad to hear it. Grant, what have you got? Well, I've got Virginia, April 25th, 28th. How's that one? <laughs> and of course, hey, we've got, isn't that the one that Sam Manicom is supposed to be going to? <laughs> I think so. He says he's going. We'll have to hold him to it. 
Uh, we've got a bunch of events. Registration has opened up for a number of events this year. We've got uh, California, April 18. Germany is May 9, Can West here in beautiful British Columbia, July 11, Switzerland, August 15, Romania, August 22, probably. There's a little question on that on the venue. Um, France, September 20 to 22, this is their 11th. And Austria is the, the newbie, September 12 to 15, this is their second. And we're looking at Queensland in October. And, of course, Germany autumn, October 31st is always the second one Germany does every year. Jens really works his tail off for those and two events, and it goes over really well. The hardcore go to the Germany autumn one in November. <laughs> but it's a fun. It's going to be a good schedule. We've got lots of tough stuff happening. Um, Lots of great presenters coming. So if you're thinking of getting out and doing any kind of traveling, this is the place you go to meet travelers that have been there, done that. And you can sit down and have lunch with them to have a chat, find out what's going on and really get to meet the people that have done it. It's really cool. So that's horizonsunlimited.com slash events. Check it out before you plan on going anywhere. You never know where there will be an event. Grant, I like to go to Horizons Unlimited Meets because I know that I'm going to be surrounded by kindred spirits. Yes. People I don't have to explain myself to, um, people that I can learn from, people that I can share with, um, people who are dreaming and drooling, and we all know that adventures begin with dreams. Amen to that. Yep. Well, that was great fun. Thank you very much, everyone. For this month, that's it. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also have published their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get ebooks at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lamphere is a moto traveler that also has a couple of great moto travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for Traveling Overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here, adventureriderradio.com. Adventure Rider Radio.